what motivates us to explore? For Jacques Cousteau, it was endless curiosity and a passion for sharing the infinite beauty and mystery of the underwater world. It's hard to believe, but back in the 1930s and 40s, we knew more about the planets and stars than the depths of our oceans. Cousteau made it his mission in life to share the beautiful universe below the surface of the sea. Welcome back to the Adventure Almanac, stories about adventure and what we learn along the way. Today's episode is about Jacques Cousteau, the invention of scuba diving, freedom, experimentation, and working with the luck that life throws at you. Cousteau lived an unbelievable life of adventure. He obsessed over new ideas that turned into big ideas that changed our understanding of life on Earth. He often said that life was like gravity. He couldn't change the direction of its pull, but he could influence how it affected him. Are you ready for an adventure? All right now, let's go. The tires squealed as Cousteau steered the Samson sports car around the hairpin turn. The headlights barely illuminated the dark road ahead as he made a quick adjustment and skirted around the next blind corner. His face held a constant grin as he pushed the limits of the car on the switchbacks of the mountain road. He wasn't late for his friend's wedding. This was just fun. All of a sudden, the headlights flickered and everything went dark. For a moment, he fell weightless in space. And then crash! The car flipped and smashed his body against the ground and threw him 25 feet into the field. He looked down, and there was a tree branch where his arm used to be. Dizzy with the pain, he tore the branch from the tree and dragged himself to a nearby farmhouse. He had 12 broken bones, four splintered ribs, punctured lungs, and his arms were shattered. He was lucky to be alive. The doctors did what they could to set his broken bones, but the infection spread quickly. They told him that they would need to amputate his arm. For three days, Cousteau fought the infection for a chance to live the life he wanted. He knew he wouldn't become a Navy pilot, but he could still follow his dream of becoming a filmmaker. The infection improved, and months later, he finally broke free of the plaster cast. The Navy transferred him to Toulon on the French Mediterranean coast. He was weak and frustrated by his slow recovery, but again, he was lucky. He didn't know it yet, but in three years, all of his friends in flight school would be killed during the first few weeks of the war. As he watched the sunlight dance on the surface of the bright blue Mediterranean Sea, he was glad he had his camera to distract him from his injuries. With a camera in his hand, he was confident, friendly, and could make everyone around him feel like a movie star. Cousteau watched Taillet sit down in the golden sand and put on fins made from two saw blades covered in rubber. Taillet then took out a pair of modified aviator glasses and tied a J-shaped piece of garden hose around his head to make a snorkel. He grabbed a sharpened brass curtain rod as a spear and gently walked backwards into the water smiling. Cousteau watched Taillet carefully. After a moment of reflection, he entered the water and slowly began his painful swimming. When Taillet came out of the water, he had dinner in his hands. They built a small fire on the beach and huddled around it for warmth. They roasted fish and lobster as the sun sank below the horizon. From that day on, swimming and beach bonfires became their routine. Every day they met on the beach, Cousteau swam above the water, and Taillet dove below. One day, Taillet randomly asked Cousteau if he would like to try the goggles. Cousteau put on the aviator goggles and stared into the water. The ocean was as clear as a swimming pool. Colorful fish darted around green and silver algae. Bright red, orange, and purple starfish made unknown constellations on the seafloor. 
Spiky purple urchins poked menacingly out of crevices between rocks, and hundreds of silver fish flashed brightly in the filtered sunlight. He could see underwater, and there was no going back. Cousteau's life changed again. A few days later, Cousteau arrived at the beach with his own mask, fins, snorkel, weight belt, and spear. A fellow named Dumas joined the fun, and the three of them became the three musketeers of the sea. For the rest of 1936, Cousteau, Taillé, and Dumas experimented constantly and pushed the limits of holding their breath underwater. When the weather turned cold, they took a clothes iron and melted rubber together to create wetsuits. Pockets of air bulged in the rubber overalls and made them flip on their heads or on their backs. They laughed at their experiments and dreamed up new adventures. Cousteau was getting stronger. He pushed the group to try new things. He put an 8mm camera in a gallon glass jar and made his first underwater film. His wife Simone splashed on the surface and his friend Dumas swam underwater grinning like a wild man. Life on the French Riviera was pretty good. They soaked up the sun, experimented underwater, and learned. The fish also learned. The three musketeers of the ocean made spearfishing so popular that the fish learned to keep their distance from the strange underwater mammals. It wasn't long before the three musketeers became frustrated by the limits of how long they could hold their breath and how deep they could dive. They started scheming about new ways to explore the ocean. A few years earlier, Le Prière invented a mask connected to a small tank of compressed air. The three musketeers decided to borrow a prototype from the Navy. Daye strapped the tank to his chest, pulled on the full face mask over his head, and slipped below the surface of the water. He sank down 20 feet, and then manually opened the valve to release the compressed air, and whoosh, a powerful burst of air flooded the mask and he came sputtering to the surface. Soon. They all got to practice with the device and they learned to control the air and stay underwater slightly longer. But it was only a small taste of freedom and they wanted to explore more. Luckily, Cousteau knew a guy. His friend Leon Nouvesh had a machine shop nearby. Together they built a self-contained rebreathing system using a canister from a gas mask, a small oxygen bottle, and a motorcycle inner tube. In just a couple of weeks they had a working prototype. Cousteau jumped into the water with his new invention and weightlessly drifted deeper into the dark blue ocean. He could see a hundred feet in every direction. He slowly exhaled and inhaled. It worked. He put his legs together and kicked like a dolphin. It was the ultimate freedom he had been searching for. For five minutes, he glided through the water. He swam silently towards a school of fish until they exploded like giant silver fireworks in all directions. Dove deeper, down to 45 feet. When all of a sudden his chest tightened and his back curved like a bow ready to be shot, his lips started trembling and he lost his mouthpiece and choked on salt water rushing into his mouth. The last thing he remembered was releasing his weight belt before passing out and floating to the surface. For a month, every muscle in his body was sore. He tried to make adjustments to the filter, eager to try again. He didn't understand that pure oxygen was poison to the body when under pressure underwater. He tried again. Beneath the mirror sky on the surface of the water, his whole body erupted in a seizure and he blacked out. Somehow he floated to the surface, and when he woke up, he knew it was back to the drawing board. In September of 1939, everything changed again. Germany declared war on Europe and the Merry Men disbanded for military service. Two years later, in winter of 1941, Taillé and Cousteau were both sent back to Toulon. They rented a nearby villa and tried to revive their carefree days. But everything was getting worse by the moment. 
They lived on bread and beans. Rations were getting less and less. Their days as underwater hunters turned into life-saving skills as they fed their friends and family from the sea. Their playful swims became an exhausting means for survival. Over the next year, Cousteau experimented with ways to make staying underwater easier. He tried the new lightweight Fernet system that pumped air from the surface through a hose to a mouthpiece. It wasn't total freedom, but it was a simple system that worked. <laughs> Until it didn't. On his first dive, the hose snagged on the boat and the bubble stopped and Cousteau barely made it to the surface alive. Dumas tried the Fernet system and dove down to 70 feet. Without warning, the air stopped again and this time Dumas was too deep. He frantically swam towards the surface but couldn't make it. He passed out and Cousteau had to dive in to save his unconscious friend from drowning. Again? They needed a new plan. While they waited for warmer weather, Cousteau put all of his energy into this dream of making movies underwater. In the spring, he found an old hand-cranked movie camera in a thrift store. He recruited his friend Uvesh to build a custom underwater housing. Because of the war, Cousteau couldn't find any film for his movie camera, so he bought every roll of 36-frame black-and-white camera film that he could find. At night, he and Simone giggled as they huddled under a blanket fort and spliced together negatives to make 50-foot reels of movie film. The new camera housing flooded constantly, and they could only take three minutes of video at a time. But despite these challenges and the war around them, they made a movie. Dumas was the star of the show. For six months, Cousteau filmed Dumas hunting fish with the spear gun, swimming and spinning underwater and smiling at the camera. Dumas might have been the star, but the anemones waving in the current and fish weaving between rocks and coral were captivating. When the film 18 Meters Below premiered in Paris on a cool October evening, the crowd seemed to hold their breath for the entire movie and then applauded nonstop when it finished. It was the first time that most people had seen life underwater and their enthusiasm was the confidence boost that Cousteau needed. Then, the world changed again. On November 27th, the German army invaded France. At dawn, Cousteau woke up to the sound of tanks driving through the streets below. His windows rattled. Then came the sickening sound of explosions. The French Navy blew up 50 of their own boats so the German army wouldn't capture them. The ocean was on fire and covered in thick black smoke for two days. They could have fled, but Cousteau stayed behind and worked as a spy for the French resistance. His marine biology credentials gave him a little flexibility and freedom, and he went on secret missions that could have been straight out of a movie. Despite the war, Cousteau couldn't stop thinking about modifying the control valves on the air tanks. In December of 1942, Cousteau made a risky trip to Paris to meet an engineer that might have a solution. In a busy factory, Cousteau met Gagnon and described his need for a demand valve to regulate the flow of air coming from his air tanks. Gagnon knew just what he needed. He tweaked a gas regulator that he had designed for a car, and in a week, he had a working prototype to try with Cousteau's diving equipment. It was a surprisingly warm day in January 1943. Cousteau strapped three steel tanks to his back and slowly waded into the muddy Mound River near Paris. He dipped his head into the cold, dark water and took a few tentative breaths. To his surprise, it worked. Cousteau pushed away from the riverbank and disappeared below the surface. He took a deep breath and listened to the rush of the air whistling through the hose. The regulator snapped close and he exhaled. He sank to the bottom and his feet squished into the soft mud. A constant cloud of bubbles erupted around him. He couldn't see anything. The air continuously leaked through the regulator. 
He spun through a dark cloud of mud and pointed his head down and his feet towards the surface. The bubbles stopped, but so did the air coming through the mouthpiece. He quickly rotated and kicked to the surface and then doggy paddled back to shore. As they drove back to the factory, Cousteau described his experience underwater. Gagnon immediately figured out a simple redesign. They moved the location of a few important parts and switched from a one-host system to a two-host system, and it seemed like everything might work. Cousteau returned to Toulon and Gagnon promised to file patents and send the finished device. With the Musketeers and a few other families, Cousteau rented a huge villa in Bondoul, a small village between Marseille and Toulon. Despite the war, life was relatively quiet. They swam in the sea and ate beans and fish for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Finally, a courier came to the house with a note that a giant wooden crate of scientific equipment had arrived at the train station. Cousteau jumped in his car and drove into town. When he returned, he made everyone wait to see the invention. Their wildest dreams were about to come true. In the crate, there were tanks, hoses, and the regulator for a self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. They called it the Aqualung. Early the next morning, they went to a secluded cove to test the equipment away from the prying eyes of the Germans. Cousteau hefted the 50-pound tanks on his back, threw the hoses over his shoulder, and spat in his mask. Simone swam out into the deep water, and Dumas waited on shore to help if needed. Cousteau eased into the water and gently bobbed up and down on the surface. Dumas waded into the water and gave him seven pounds of lead weight, and Cousteau started sinking. He took his first breath underwater, and the familiar whistle of air rushing through the hose and the pop of the regulator closing filled him with excitement. He was breathing underwater. It was totally natural and unnatural at the same time. He gently kicked his fins and glided over the blue-green sand and then down a dark green canyon of seagrass into deeper water. At about 30 feet, he felt the familiar squeeze of pressure in his ears and sinuses. He smiled in the mouthpiece. It was more perfect than he could ever have imagined. He looked up and waved at Simone 30 feet above him on the surface. She waved back. He watched each exhale of his breath make a thousand bubbles shaped like silver jellyfish or flying saucers blasting towards the sky above him. Not only could he breathe underwater, but he could see perfectly. He pushed away from the rocks and swam through his bubbles. He pretended he was back in flight school and he did barrel rolls and somersaults. He was flying underwater. He reached down with his hand and balanced on one finger upside down and laughed so hard that he lost his mouthpiece. He swam deeper and everything worked perfectly. When he exhaled, he sank. When he inhaled, he floated. His soft kick of his fins and he drifted forward. He was a fish, a man fish. Cousteau looked towards shore and saw a limestone cave. He had always wanted to explore the caves, but worried about being able to hold his breath long enough. Not anymore. He kicked into the entrance of one of the tunnels. Darkness surrounded him except for a small circle of blue light behind him. He looked up and all around him were hundreds of tiny glowing eyes. He looked more carefully and saw the antenna of lobsters waving through the water. He grabbed two of the lobsters and swam towards the surface. Simone saw him coming and dove down to meet him. He handed her the lobsters and turned back around to grab more. He thought of his starving friends and family as he made five more trips to gather these gifts from the ocean. Cousteau became one with the ocean. And from that day on, he devoted his life to sharing the beauty of life underwater with the world. He realized teaching people to love the ocean was the best way to protect it. When he was swimming in the silent world underwater, 
the shackles of gravity and noises of the world above no longer applied to him. He could do anything, and he was free to explore wherever his curiosity could take him. Thanks for listening. Did you like the story? If you did, please take a moment to throw some hearts and stars our way. For more information about Jacques Cousteau's early life, you can find references and extra notes, like the story about one of his spy missions for the French Resistance, on AdventureNerds.com. This episode was researched, written, and produced by the team at Adventure Nerds. Original music was written and performed by Drell. You can find more of Drell's work wherever you listen to music and by following the links in the show notes. Until next time, be curious and choose adventure. If you could be any underwater animal, what animal would you be? Why? <laughs>